You ready? Showtime. On May 3rd, summer starts with the fall guy. Let's do it later. Let's drink a spicy margarita. Make some bad decisions. Yes. Audiences are falling in love with the most entertaining film of the year. Fall guy. Fall guy. Fall guy. That's what the poster said. See Ryan Gosling and Emily Blunt in the movie critics say exists to make you happy. Trying to make it out? Because nope. I don't either. It's not what I'm into right now. What are you into? Talking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Fall Guy. Only in theaters May 3rd. Read it PG-13. Hello, everyone, and you are listening to the 50 Years Ago in Hockey podcast. I'm your host, Rick Cole, and every week we take you on a trip down memory lane back 50 years, and we report on all the hockey and some other sporting news from that time period. This week, we're looking at February 8th to 14th. 1971. This podcast is made possible by the support of our two sponsors. Newspapers.com is the world's largest online news archive. They have every newspaper you could possibly think of there, and they're crucial to our research. Their support enables us to get all the great content that we give you every week. Uh, We're also sponsored by the Breakwall Brewing Company in beautiful downtown Port Colborne, Ontario. The folks at the Breakwall, great friends of mine, uh, produce some of the finest craft beers in southern Ontario, and I think they got the best pub food on the planet. When things open up again, I'd love to meet any of our listeners for a beer and a burger or a pizza at the Breakwall in Port Colborne. If you're enjoying what we do every day on Twitter and each week here at the 50 Years Ago in Hockey podcast, you can really help us out a lot by subscribing uh, to our special content podcast at patreon.com slash hockey 50 years. Your subscription gets you early access to this show every week, plus lots of bonus content we give uh, our subscribers every month. We talk about special uh, dive into different subjects such as uh, the trades that have been taking place at this point back in the 70-71 season. We're working on a very deep dive into the Ned Harkness mess that was uh, taking place in Detroit. And I'm working on a, a uh, project where we're going to look at how the media traded the death of Terry Sawchuk in 1970. Uh, if you're at all interested in this time period, we think a subscription to the 50 Years Ago on Hockey podcast would be well worth the effort and the money. Last week was kind of a crazy week in the uh, National Hockey League 50 years ago. I called it trade week in the NHL. It wasn't trade deadline like we see now 50 years later, but it was a week when it seemed a log jam broke up and three very major deals were made. Mike Walton was finally traded in a deal that should have cemented a bright future for the Maple Leafs when they got goalie Bernie Perrant. But as we mentioned, that wasn't the only big deal of the week. And what we talked about, we had two other major trades as well. And uh, one other story we brought you was uh, young star defenseman Serge Savard of the Canadians suffered a broken leg. It was the same leg and the same bone that he broke last spring. And this was going to put him out for the rest of this season 
as well. This week we have a lot of news and notes. We have some reaction to the trades that took place last week and we have a few games that we'll highlight as well. But we'll begin the week with the fallout from that huge Detroit-St. Louis trade that saw Red Berenson and Tim Ecclestone go to Detroit for Gary Unger and Wayne Connolly in a deal that shook the very foundations of both teams in St. Louis and Detroit. Milt Dunnell in Monday's Toronto Star had a look at, at this deal that, that, as you look back on it, was pretty much spot on. At least that's what I thought at that time. And I really haven't changed my mind that much now. Milt writes that logical conclusions sometimes are just too simple to be correct. Thus, the obvious answer to the Red Berenson deal turned out to be almost 100% wrong. Berenson, who's president of the National Hockey League Players Association, was bartered off to the Detroit Red Wings along with Tim Ecclestone, who just happened to be the player's representative on the St. Louis club. So what could be simpler than to decide the St. Louis management had elected to intimidate members of the Blues in the hope of curtailing their union activities? Berenson himself encourage that thinking when he said that the club seemed to be uptight about the association and he just couldn't understand it. Red had no way of knowing that the Detroit club, which was pondering a shift of Gary Unger and Wayne Connolly to the Blues for Berenson and Ecclestone, already had contacted Al Eagleson, executive director of the Players Association, for the lowdown on Red Berenson. Now, the reason that the Wings went to Eagleson was that Scotty Bowman, general manager of the Blues, had told them, look, if you want to know what an outstanding type of guy Berenson is, why don't you talk to Al Eagleson? Of course, the Red Wings management did exactly that. In the course of their conversation, they also revealed that there would be no deal unless Bowman included Ecclestone in the package, which would be delivered to the Olympia Stadium in Detroit. The Olympia, by the way, must be on the post office list of temporary addresses for anybody advising of those changes with the postal service anyone who gets his mail there these days is almost sure to be somewhere else in the very near future the only thing the red wings haven't traded this season is the parking lot and we're not saying they won't do that either anyway now that eagleson knew the blues were likely to trade berenson whom he had recommended as an excellent type and a great team man he couldn't get on the blower and warn red that he might be moving nor could he tip off ecclestone that the detroits were high on him there was no assurance after all that the deal would come to pass both bowman and eagleson might have been somewhat embarrassed therefore by what happened saturday morning when the trade was finally announced barrison said what he might have been expected to say that it looked as though the blues didn't want any union types around the team eagleson was of course skiing at, ha at collingwood when he heard it in a newscast he grabbed the nearest phone in the hope of getting to red before any any more damage could be done Bowman called his players together and said, I hope you will elect the man you consider most capable to represent this club on the association. 
The production charts offer a reasonably strong clue as to why both clubs might have been in the mood for a change. Berenson, who scored 68 goals for St. Louis in two seasons, has been stalled at only 16 during this campaign. He hadn't scored a goal in 11 games when the Blues were in town here in Toronto last week. Over in Detroit, Gary Younger had earned the raves of the multitudes with 66 goals in two seasons for the Wings. But this has been a nothing season for him so far, only 13 goals at the moment of the deal. Gary has been plagued by injury and arguments with Ned Harkness all year. Of course, Harkness came in as coach this season and now... He's been booted upstairs to be general manager of the team. It wasn't difficult for either club to decide uh, that two players were far below the regular batting averages. In the view of Unger's known feelings for Harkness, a deal was most certainly in order. Bowman stated that as far as we're concerned, Unger is the key to this trade. Detroit seemed to consider Ecclestone the important man in their plans, probably because he's only 23 years old, but they're expecting big things, of course, from Red Berenson. Berenson has been something of an institution since the Blues got him from the New York Rangers back in that very first year of expansion, 1967-68. Red always uh, maintained that it was ironic that a member of the St. Louis club should be president of the Players Association because of all the teams in the league, the Blues needed the NHLPA the least. The Sydney Solomons, who owned the Blues, were considered unfair to management by other teams in the league rather than to their employees. They carried the team off to Florida for postseason vacations. When Berenson scored six goals against the Philadelphia, who was a favorite foe for the Blues, by the way, in one game, the Solomons gave him a brand new station wagon. Instead of cherishing it until the wheels fell off, though, Red sold it to blues broadcaster Dan Kelly. That could have been when the chill set in. Bowman says not at all. Red was the businessman and we're in business too, though. Well, Milt Dunnell was hinting at something here that actually may have been a contributing factor to Berenson being traded. There were other factors, like we said at work, and other writers were looking at the same things that Milt Dunnell, in his classy way, only hinted about. Hal Sigurdsson, the Vancouver Sun, had a theory going on that he talked about. And when you look at everything you, and you listen to how or you uh, consider how NHL owners deal with players. This might be uh, pretty close to the truth. Sigurdsson wrote that one theory is that Red Berenson was rousted out of St. Louis because of his union work, but a new theory is that the high-scoring forward was dealt to the Detroit Red Wings because he was an indiscreet car salesman. Alan Eagleson, who's a business agent for Berenson and the elite of the National Hockey League's wage earners, shed some new light on the trade this week that saw Berenson and Ecclestone move from St. Louis to Detroit for Unger and Connolly, as we've mentioned. Eagleson told a Tuesday hockey lunch meeting that, to the contrary, 
Despite Berenson's claim, he is satisfied that Berenson was not traded because of his role as president of the NHLPA. Eagleson said he based his opinion on personal talks he had with management of the Blues. Eagleson said the trade was made as part of a business arrangement, uh, but that Berenson's association with the association probably was a motivating factor. Uh, Eagleson said Red is always prepared to stick his neck out for a journeyman hockey player because he suffered from the system himself in both Montreal and New York. Eagleson said Berenson fell from favor with the St. Louis Brass because he sold a station wagon to blues broadcaster Dan Kelly and it was the same station wagon that the Grateful Blues gave him for scoring six goals against the Flyers in a game a couple years ago. Mr. Solomon, that's said Solomon III, apparently didn't like to see his gift in the parking lot every day being driven by someone else, much less someone else particularly related to Red Berenson. This takes us to Ted Blackman of the Montreal Gazette, their uh, often controversial columnist. He's fairly new to the Gazette, and it appears that Ted's trying to make a name for himself with a lot of what he writes, and sometimes feel, uh, people feel he's a little fast and loose with the facts, but he did put this in print, and we'll report it to you. Uh, he said that the equity in the Detroit-St. Louis swap convinces him that Berenson was not traded only to satisfy uh, Sid Solomon's peak about the car. Nevertheless, Berenson's days in St. Louis were numbered and the blue slump of late accelerated the deal rather than uh, delayed it at all. Here is the dope on the Berenson-Solomon affair according to Ted Blackman. As head of the Players Union, Berenson was deeply involved in negotiating the sale of merchandising rights to the Licensing Corporation of America. Another party was interested in these rights, National Hockey League or NHL Services, which is an offshoot of the National Hockey League, and it's run, of course, by the league owners. Sidney Solomon III is one of those National Hockey League owners. Therefore, the deal was completed. Sidney Solomon III suggested to Berenson that the players and owners join forces rather than involve a third party. This way, both sides would retain most of the dough. Berenson wanted a 50-50 split with the owners. Solomon said he convinced his fellow owners on that proposition. Well, SS3 managed to sell the idea to his ownership colleagues after a lot of debate, and he returned home to deliver the good news to Berenson. But he was furious to learn the players had taken the owner's 50-50 split proposition and used it as leverage to bump up the offer from Licensing Corporation of America. Solomon felt taken and reported the outcome to his fellow owners with considerable embarrassment about the double cross. Here is what Red Berenson told Ted Blackman. I understand management throughout the league is very upset at some of the things we, the players, have done recently. Upset was an understatement. It got Red traded. Staying with the St. Louis Blues, a lot of news out of St. Louis these days. 
the next shoe to drop in the St. Louis uh, arena saw Al Arbor removed, or he removed himself, if you believe the reports, as coach of the Blues, and he returned to the ice as an active player and team captain. Of course, he took that over with the department, or the departure of Red Berenson. This was just over a week after Bowman had declared that Arbor's position as coach of the team was safe. And now you got to wonder where that came from. We really don't have any way of knowing whether Al Arbor fell or he was pushed. But we do know that there seemed to be cracks developing in the relationship between Bowman and the Blues ownership, principally Sid Solomon. So maybe Scotty was just firing all the torpedoes in an effort to salvage the season and his job. But the prevailing sentiment in most published reports indicated that Al went to Scotty and asked him to take over the team so he could return to playing. Al felt he wasn't coaching the best team possible, and the best team possible was Al being on the ice. Arbor did not want to be a player coach. Bowman said he had no aspirations whatsoever of going back behind the bench. Scotty says, quote, I had lost my desire to coach. But Bowman uh, agreed to resume coaching strictly on an interim trial basis after two weeks, he said, of listening to Arbor argue that he could still help the team in a playing role. I get the impression, Scotty said, that I might be helping him and he may be helping me. But Al is my coach. I'll do the job only until he finishes playing and then he will take over as coach once again. Jack Berry of the Detroit Free Press says, yeah, it's been an, uh, a very active year in trading in the NHL. In fact, of the 14 National Hockey League teams only one to this point in the season had failed to make a trade. That one team, the Chicago Blackhawks, and they didn't need to make a deal. They're practically home and cooled out in the weak Western division in first place. Anyway, the uh, Barry also reported that the Red Wings weren't done trading and they were very much seeking a goalkeeper. The goaltender that Detroit general manager Ned Harkness wants, I think we've mentioned this before, is Doug Favela, the Flyers. The problem was the Flyers weren't going to be able to trade Doug Favela after dealing Bernie Perrant to the Maple Leafs. Barry says that the Red Wings, the Flyers, and the Rangers had worked out a three-way deal that would have sent Favela to Detroit, but that Harkness says he backed out of the trade because he felt Philadelphia GM Keith Allen was dealing in bad faith. How naive of Ned Harkness to actually believe that National Hockey League general managers always deal in good faith. Ned, there's no honor among thieves and these guys will rob you blind if you give them the chance. Minnesota North Stars made a rather curious announcement this week. They said that uh, Tommy Williams was off the team and they're going to trade him as soon as possible. They're not suspending him. They're not demoting him. He's just off the team. They're still going to pay him. He's going to get his full salary, 
but he won't be around the team. Now, Tommy Williams, you'll remember, has been dealing with the sudden death of his wife who passed away at the family home rather suddenly a couple of months ago. According to people around the North Stars, Tommy Williams had been having problems with coach Jackie Gordon and general manager Blair in his infinite wisdom, figured that the only solution to this problem was back up the coach and get rid of Williams. This was typical of how the National Hockey League and, and actually a lot of other professional sports organizations dealt with employees in crisis. There was no talk of trying to get some help for Tom, only of removing what management perceived as a bad influence on the team and hopefully recouping an asset for the player at the same time. It would be a few weeks before Williams was finally moved and it would not prove to be one of Ren Blair's better deals. More on that as it uh, becomes known later on. And another little clue on how hockey managements work after receiving a vote of confidence from the Vancouver Canucks management just a couple months previously, the Rochester Americans coach and general manager Dick Gamble found himself unemployed this week. He was fired as the GM coach by the parent Vancouver Canucks. Doug Adam, a Vancouver scout and a hockey lifer according to most, took over as general manager of the Amerks, while the Canucks chief scout, Peanuts O'Flaherty, assumed the bench boss role with Rochester. Now maybe the Canucks had to get Flaherty out of the scouting department after he recently proclaimed that he would rather see the Canucks if they finish last in the National Hockey League this year, take Montreal Canadiens, Montreal Junior Canadiens defenseman Jocelyn Gavermont instead of Quebec Rampart's right winger Guy Lafleur as the first overall pick in next June's amateur draft. That's right. Peanuts O'Flaherty says that if the draft were right now, he'd be taking Gavermont first and Lafleur would not be his choice. The California Golden Seals are right now the odds-on favorite to finish last in the National Hockey League's overall standings. They're 15 points out of a playoff berth and and uh, in a year where they have the first overall draft pick in the June draft, they could be the worst team and won't even be able to get a good player. But still, Freddie Glover, the coach now doubling, doubling as general manager, is optimistic the team can make the playoffs this year. Freddie says we've got 25 games left and a good winning streak could start us climbing. Number one, don't consider us to be out of playoff contention. But Freddie added, you know, I am an eternal optimist. Optimism, of course, feeds on victories. And the Seals carry a five-game losing streak into the action they're going to be going this week. And uh, in fact, this story was written when they were going to play the Buffalo Sabres. Glover said he hoped the shake-up of the Seals' lines would be the answer to the present doldrums. He switched up his lines a bit. He had Ted Hampson between uh, veteran Jerry Eamon and youngster Ernie Hickey. And then he moved Don O'Donohue from left wing to center between Gary Jarrett and Bill Hickey. 
looking at these lines, they do not inspire fear in the minds of the Seals' opponents. Another thing that's been bugging Coach Glover lately has been the play of goalie Gary Smith. And, and we really don't know why Freddie would be upset with Gary Smith. Uh, he's complained that Smith has been uh, a little bit erratic, inconsistent in his play this year. Well, maybe... Gary needs a rest. To this point in the season, Gary Smith had played 50 of the Seals' 53 games. Mike Laney of the Minneapolis Star talked about North Star's captain Ted Harris and how valuable he is to the team. In fact, he spoke to coach Jackie Gordon about Harris and Jackie said in his own little way, Ted takes guys out on the ice. The other night in Boston, Derek Sanderson was running around all over the place and Teddy nailed him good. That settled Sanderson down. In the past, we've been pushed around by the Noel Picards and others, but not this year, and that rubs off on the other players. Harris shows leadership without saying a lot. To the members of the team. Gordon told Lamey that he knows that other people expect Harris to be running around and starting fights. He is an excellent fighter, but you see, Ted can't do that. He's too valuable to the team. Gordon says, our defense is young. Their average age is 23 without Harris's age figured in. Uh, Gordon says, I don't see how we could have gone the way we did with kids like Freddie Barrett and Dennis O'Brien without Ted Harris around to steady them down. Here's an update on the broken leg suffered by Hab Serge Savard that we told about last week. It seems that surgery on the leg proved to be completely successful and the doctors are confident that Serge will be able to resume his hockey career next fall. We all hope that Savard will be able to play at some clo something close to the same level at which he was performing before he was so badly hurt on that body check by Leafs Bobby Bond in a game at the Forum. Staying with the Habs, Jean Beliveau reached a milestone this week reserved for very few National Hockey League players. Jean potted his 500th NHL goal, which was set up by a rookie, young Phil Roberto. It was one of three scores for Beliveau and a lopsided 6-2 win by Montreal over the Minnesota North Stars. Do you ever wonder why the Los Angeles Kings had very little success in their early National Hockey League's existence? Well, back 50 years ago, we were given a good clue and the person who gave us the good clue was none other then general manager of the Kings, Larry Regan, who unintentionally explained what the problem was in an interview with Red Burnett of the Toronto Star. Uh, Regan was talking to Burnett about how the Leafs were so wise to trade their first round draft pick in next June's draft to get Bernie Perrant from the Flyers. Now, Larry, of course, has dealt away the Kings' first-round pick a couple of times already, and eventually we would learn that he had very little to show for those deals. But here is the method in Larry's madness, and I don't know if it's more madness than method or not, but this is what Regan had to say. Larry says he trades away first-round picks because, quote, I honestly believe that the intra-league or pro-draft will become much more important than 
than the amateur draft. It will be as good this June and much better in 1972, and the intra-league draft will just keep getting better. Why? Well, teams like Boston, New York, Montreal, Chicago, and the other established clubs will be unable to protect all their good players at the intra-league draft. This means that we'll be able to draft players who have established their ability to play in the National Hockey League. To me, that draft eventually will become the great leveler and be far more important than the amateur draft where you're guessing on picking up untried kids. Larry, take a look at the interleague draft. You're getting the 16th, 17th, 18th best player on an NHL team's roster. That's not going to be a guy who could develop into a superstar. Most of these guys are guys who've been hanging around and just can't find a spot in the NHL. Unless, of course, it's on the Kings who are so bad that almost anybody could make their team. One of the games we wanted to talk about this week uh, probably was the outstanding goalkeeping performance of the entire 1970-71 National Hockey League season. This game was a 4-4 tie between the Minnesota North Stars and the Boston Bruins at Boston Garden. Why would a 4-4 tie feature spectacular outstanding goalkeeping? Well, we'll let Dwayne Netlin, the fine hockey reporter of the Minneapolis Tribune, tell the story. Gump Worsley defied his aging legs and Boston's firepower to contribute one of the best goaltending efforts of his National Hockey League career Sunday night. Worsley, hopping around the net like a 41-year-old ballerina, faced 67, that's right, 6-7 Boston shots, a record for any Minnesota goalie, in a 4-4 tie with the Bruins. The North Stars gained a valuable point in the struggle for West Division playoff positions. Boston took 25 shots on goal in the first period alone without scoring, a period in which the North Stars startled 14,994 partisans by taking a 3-0 lead over the Bruins. It was 4-3 for the Stars after the second period, but when it was finally over, they were grateful to earn a point for the tie. Foremost of Worsley's victims were the two ranking scorers in the NHL, Phil Esposito and Bobby Orr. Orr directed 13 shots at the Gumper, and Esposito got off 10 drives, and neither of them scored a goal. Esposito, after the game, said it was fantastic what the old man did to us tonight. Without his goaltending, the score would have been 10-4. I was there, I saw it, but I can't believe some of the saves he made. That's vintage Phil Esposito. Phil spoke from the heart, and he was dead on in this case. Phil was a little miffed over losing a goal at 13:24 of that wild first period. The red light went on after he took a shot on goal, but the North Stars complained to referee Art Scove that the puck did not cross the goal line. Scove skated over to the goal judge, Eddie Sanford, and said, Can you swear you saw the puck in the net? Sanford shook his head. The goal was disallowed 
and the fans didn't like it. Asked about the controversial play after the game, the Gumper said, I can't say whether it was in or not. All I know is that I heard it hit the pipe. Then it bounced against my leg and went out onto the ice. The Gumper was willing to compare this uh, 60 uh, save performance with the game last March in which he stopped 56 Rangers shops. Gump says the games were actually uh, pretty much alike except that we won the New York game 4-2 but this was a big point for us tonight. Worsley said that not many teams go into Boston Garden and take any points out with them so this was a big one. There was absolutely no way that Worsley could be faulted for any of Boston's four goals, but Gump expressed self-criticism over the first one, which was scored by Don Marcotte at 13.36 of the first. I tried to steer the puck away, he explained. It jumped over my stick and into the net. That put them on fire, and I knew that it would, but bad goals usually do that for a team. That score brought the Bruins to within 3-1. to one. The North Stars already had their 3-0 lead at that point, but Lou Nanny converted a pass from Jude Druin as Druin was fighting off Bobby Orr's check, and Minnesota had the 4-1 lead at the 15-20 mark. Coach Jackie Gordon said if we could have taken that lead into the third period, I think we could have held on for the win, but the Boston goal in the last minute of the second period is what really hurt us and got them going. The Bruins cut the Minnesota lead to 4-3 in the second minute of the third period when Orr passed to Kenny Hodge and Hodge beat Worsley. The Bruins tied it at 13-15 when Johnny Busick uh, scored on a rebound when the North Stars were unable to clear the puck from in front of their own net. There were a few anxious moments after that, notably a bullet shot by Derek Sanderson that Worsley gloved, but the Stars somehow held on to record their second tie in four years on Boston ice. Bruins coach Tom Johnson said that being three goals down against a hot goaltender is no bargain, and the way things turned out, it was a big point for the North Stars, but also a big point for the Bruins. Johnson said that Worsley was incredible in the first period. Consider this for a moment. 25 shots saved, and most of them, as Esposito and Orr observed, were missiles fired from close range. What we found out after the game was that the Gump had actually volunteered, virtually volunteered, to play the game against Boston. Worsley knew that Jackie Gordon, the coach, wanted to use Gilles Gilbert Saturday night against Chicago, and by playing himself uh, against the Bruins, Worsley set up the Minnesota goaltending rotation for the rest of the week. After the game, Gump, always ready with a quip, said, I'm ready to play another one. Next week, that is. Our next game was a critical matchup between the Bruins and the Rangers. New York needed this game to pull within five points of first place Boston, but on this night, it wasn't to be. The Bruins took a nine-point lead over the Rangers with a convincing 6-2 blitzing of New York. And Tom Fitzgerald of the Boston Globe 
had the report on this one. The Bruins came close to clinching the title of the National Hockey League East last night at the Garden as they accelerated uh, for another strong finish to smite the Rangers 6-3. to It would be hard to convince any of the constantly excited onlookers in the place for the rest of the season that something uh, of a National Hockey League title isn't simply a formality. In fact, the biggest problem the Boston fans would have had this evening was figuring out who their three-star listing might be because there were plenty of candidates. High among them was Wayne Cashman, the working man of the league's top scoring line with Phil Esposito and Ken Hodge. It was Cash who scored the actual game winner at 6.05 in the third period after a typical for him digging effort in the corner. Wayne said, that's the kind of goal I have to get. I'm not one of your fancy stick handlers. I have to just use the body and muck around it back in those corners. And that's exactly what I did. And just for good measure, Cash pulled it out of reach with a scaler into the empty net with 29 seconds left in the game. Bobby Orr boosted the total with a dazzling finish on a high backhand flip with just 12 seconds to go as well. Another one of the star candidates in this one was right winger Kenny Hodge, known as a goal scorer. Well, Kenny in this game racked up five assists and that equaled a club record for the Bruins. In addition to Cashman and Orr, the other Boston scorers in this vital success were Phil Esposito with his 46 of the season and Johnny Busick, who got the 3-3 tire with his 34th of the year on a power play. Both of these goals came in the second period. A a curious stat from this game is that the Rangers actually outshot the Bruins 43-39, which is a rarity for an opponent in Boston Garden. And that, of course, brings up the subject of another fellow who could have been one of the three stars, goalie Eddie Johnston. Cashman said Eddie Johnson was super, just super. He was outstanding, and without a few key saves early in the game, we could have been out of this one pretty quickly. Johnson was strong and alert in gaining his 18th win of the season, and he now has two wins and a tie against the Rangers. Johnson had one of his most significant crises very early while the Bruins were leading 1-0 and it came on a weird development as Orr lost the puck to forechecking Bruce McGregor halfway inside the Boston zone. This gave McGregor a clear break in on goal on Johnson but Johnson made the save. Eddie said afterwards that Bruce tried to outguess me. He was thinking about getting it up high on me, and I was able to take another step out to block the shot. Eddie had some other good stops as well during the game, including a couple of good tries by Dave Ballone and Billy Fairburn on a power play after the big Cashman goal. Hodge, uh, with his five assists, he seemed to be all over the ice right from the start of the game, using his size to advantage and dogging the puck zealously at every opportunity. Something Ken has been accused of not doing in the past, he's doing it all the time these days. He was a key in the build-up to Orr's first goal, which came in only 32 seconds of play in the first period. 
Hodge told Tom Fitzgerald, we had a lot of shots early. Espy had one shot that Villamere kicked out. There was another by Bobby, and the goalie stopped that one too. Rattel went for the puck in the corner, but I was able to check it away from him. The puck went back to Bobby, and of course that was history after that. The Bruins and Bobby Orr very nearly experienced disaster on that final goal with 12 seconds left. After Bobby made a great rush, Bobby Orr, that is, made a great rush up the ice, he finished up with a backhand up under the crossbar. And after completing the scoring play, Orr went hurtling into the boards, uh, sort of shoulder back into it. John Busick, after the game, said, I think somebody ought to know that a penny he threw on the ice nearly caused a bad accident. Bobby Skates caught it, and that's what threw him into the end boards. Fans, you don't throw stuff on the ice. And there was a Boston fan in their own rink throwing a penny on the ice for whatever reason, and that's what caused Orr to go flying into the boards. That could have been disastrous. Our final game of the week is uh, kind of an example of how the Maple Leafs have improved over the course of the 70-71 season. It was a Thursday night game in Chicago, and the Leafs took a grinding 3-2 win over the Hawks, a game in which coach John McClellan said cemented the Leafs' playoff aspirations, and Rex McLeod of the Globe and Mail had the report for us. Four games and five nights is hardly an invigorating schedule, even by the National Hockey League's demanding standards, but the Toronto Maple Leafs have thrived on it this week. They looked weary or careful throughout much of last night's game in Chicago, but they rallied for two goals in the final 10 minutes for a 3-2 win over the very surprised Chicago Blackhawks. Defenseman Mike Pellick scored the winning goal with fewer than four minutes left in the contest. It shocked a crowd estimated at 20,000 into disbelieving silence. Many of them had come prepared to see Bobby Hull become the second highest goal scorer in National Hockey League history. Hull, however, was hampered by a bruised hip and was compelled to navigate with exceptional care, and that isn't Hull's style. Anybody who watches him knows that. He had four shots on goal, but few of them were dangerous by Bobby Hull's lofty standards. Bobby's NHL total for goals right now is 544, tied with Maurice Richard for number two on the all-time list. Only Gord Howe has scored more. Bobby's younger brother Dennis, who is not threatening any NHL records, kept the whole family on the spotlight though. He scored Chicago's two goals to raise his total for the schedule to 28 this year, a career year for young Dennis, still playing in the shadow of older brother Bobby. Paul Henderson scored a power play goal for the Leafs late in the first period. It was his 23rd of the year. Brian Spencer, with number 9 for him, tied the score at 2-2 for the Leafs halfway through the final frame, and Pellick came through, as we mentioned, with the winner. The Leafs, who had an unimpressive road record throughout most of the season, have become unusually successful in their recent adventures away from Maple Leaf Gardens. In their past four road games, they've won three and tied win or tied one for seven 
points out of a possible eight, and they also stretched their undefeated streak at this point in the season to six games. The Blackhawks looked like the more robust and energetic team through most of the game, but the Leafs, sometimes actually through design, sometimes through accident, kept the Hawks confused in front of the Toronto net. Bernie Perrant, making his second start in goal for Toronto, complete another competent game and goal. He needed to be exceptionally vigilant at all times because the Leafs had trouble controlling the puck in their own zone. We finally got a few breaks, said Leafs Vice President King Clancy. Hawks coach Billy Ray said, we gave away three easy goals and that was the story of this game. The Hawks have been hit hard by injuries over the past few weeks and they had another when center Pitt Martin was hurt in the third period after what seemed to be a very casual collision with Brian Spencer. Martin was carried off the ice on a stretcher and was taken to hospital for examination. He never did lose consciousness. He was conscious at all time. Martin said, I don't think I was hit. I twisted as I fell and I thought I felt something go, but it seemed to slip back in place while I was lying there on the ice. So it looked a lot worse than it actually was. Nonetheless, Pitt was examined by the Hawks Club doctor who said that he suspected a contusion of the cartilage in the vicinity of the seventh rib. Perrant made probably the save of the game, one of the best uh, a lot of observers had seen this season. Uh when he stopped Stan Makita on a breakaway. Makita sashayed in all alone from the blue line in. He gave Perrant the double shift, double whammy, and a few other tricks that Stan has in his extensive repertoire. But Bernie followed him through the contortions and stopped him cold. That seemed to give the momentum back to the Maple Leafs. It was a tired Toronto team, fourth game in five nights, but they played it smart, they played it conservative, and they leaned on some very, very solid goalkeeping from Bernie Perrant, and this was a perfect example of how the Maple Leafs season has gone this year and how they could have some success once they get to the Stanley Cup playoffs. And so that is our show this week, everyone. And what did we learn this time around? Well, we learned a little more background about why the Blues were anxious to give away. Well, not give away. They made a good deal, but they still traded their inspirational leader, Red Berenson. Maybe we know why now. We also got to know a bit about why the North Stars feel Ted Harris is the most valuable player on this team and why Tommy Williams is not. And we found that despite efforts by Ranger General Manager Emil Francis to close the gap between his team and the Boston Bruins, the Rangers still have a ways to go. Here are some of the stories we're working on for next week. I hope we'll have a profile of Maple Leafs legend George Armstrong. Now, 50 years later, George recently passed away, but this week... 50 years ago, or next week, 50 years ago, the great Red Burnett of the Toronto Star had a profile of George, and we'll bring that to you. We'll have a look at the Quebec Pee Wee Hockey Tournament as it was in 1971. And another thing we're going to look at is we're going to learn how the Higgins goalie masks are made, and that will be from Ernie Higgins himself. And, of course, we'll have much much, 
more. Our 50 Years Ago in Hockey podcast is produced by Andy Cole. Andy's a true pro. We can't thank him enough for everything he does. He puts in a lot of hard work into this. Andy will produce a podcast professionally for you. If you're interested in putting something together, get a hold of me and I'll put you in contact with Andy. Hopefully you guys can uh, work something out. Very popular Juno-nominated Toronto Indie Rock Group, the Rural Alberta Advantage, gives us our intro and exit music. They put on a great live show once things loosen up and we get back to having concerts. You gotta take in one of their performances. Other musical pieces and sound effects in the podcast are by Andy Cole as well. As we mentioned off the top, thanks to newspapers.com and the Toronto Star and the Toronto Globe and Mail. That's where a lot of our research comes from. And uh, without their help, we'd never get this done. You can find us on Twitter at, at Hockey50Years. We're there every day with hockey news. We're on Facebook under the 50 Years Ago in Hockey uh, banner. And we have a WordPress site at Hockey50YearsAgo.com. You can subscribe to the podcast and all our special content at patreon.com slash hockey50years. This is a great 70-71 hockey season. We're going to be with you right through to the Stanley Cup. And on that note, we will see you next time.